What's up, everyone? I hope you're all doing all right wherever you are today. It's been a surreal few months as the world tries to adapt to new societal norms. COVID-19 has been top of mind for many of us. And on today's episode, two guests and I dive deep into some of the issues and conversations regarding health data privacy and surveillance among public health institutions. Vince Caritas is an independent healthcare strategy consultant with over 30 years of experience across 150 healthcare organizations. He also has a blog at ecaremanagement.com. And my second guest is Devin McGraw, and she is the chief regulatory officer at Citizen and former official at the OCR and ONC. Together, they have written a fantastic series called The Health Data Goldilocks Dilemma, which sheds light on the many complex issues related to our ever-increasing demand for health data. A link to this series can be found on the healthcareblog.com. There's a link in the show notes. I really enjoyed speaking to both of them, and I hope you all enjoy the show. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today we have two guests here on the show to talk about the regulatory side of healthcare data privacy and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the industry. Devin McGraw is a former deputy director for health information privacy at the office for civil rights of the United States Department of Health and Human Services. And she is now the chief regulatory officer at Citizen. That's with two I's, C-I-I-T-I-Z-E-N. Evan, thanks for joining. Thank you. Good to be here. And we also have Vince Caritas. He is principal of his own independent healthcare consulting company, Better Health Technologies, LLC, since 1997. So you've experienced many technological trends over the years. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you both. So thanks for joining me. And I think we should just go ahead and get started. If you could briefly just talk about your backgrounds, you know, your journey into healthcare law. Yeah, I know you both have JDs uh, and, um, you know, just briefly talk about what you're currently working on. Sure. So I, um, I went to law school actually to do healthcare law. I got a joint law degree and a public health master's through a single joint degree program but I didn't start working on privacy law. I was just sort of a general healthcare transactional lawyer. Most of my clients were hospitals. Started working on privacy law in the probably about mid 2000s and kind of have been doing that ever since. Um, And what I do at Citizen is it's, it's sort of a broad title of chief regulatory officer. So I do do a lot of work on privacy issues. I write our privacy policies. I help our users get their data under the HIPAA right of uh, individual access. 
Um, but I also, you know, we're a company that is also um, going to empower patients to share their data for research. So I have to know a bit about the research rules and the FDA rules. And, you know, healthcare is a pretty regulated industry generally, and kind of anything that has the word regulation and it falls in my lap. So thanks. Yeah. And uh, if Vince, you want to kind of talk about your background as well. Yeah, sure. So Devin and I do share a legal background, but I have not practiced law. I did go to uh, UCLA and get a joint degree in business and in law, but have taken the business side of my career. Uh, spent some time working uh, with a national consulting firm, for-profit chain, 10 years with an integrated delivery system. And then for the last uh, 20 years, I've been running my own independent healthcare consulting practice uh, out of my house. And uh, clients have included about half early stage startup companies and about half uh, large uh, established, usually tech companies. Uh, in, Intel was a client and I've done a number of projects with them for over a decade. Uh, Philips, Samsung. The area that I work in usually is around uh, strategy, business models, partnerships, the market side of development in, in working with uh, healthcare companies. What, what brought uh, Devin and me together uh, to talk with you today is a series we've been writing on the healthcare blog. And the series is around the healthcare data Goldilocks dilemma. Uh, is there privacy? Is there uh, data sharing? Or is there both? And how do we get the right amount of data? That's the reference to the, the Goldilocks in there. So I uh, look forward to talking with you a little bit about uh, privacy and COVID and uh, what's going on in the healthcare uh, industry. And thanks for the chance to, uh, to join you both. Awesome. Thank you both. You know, given light of what's going on with COVID-19, there is so much talk about privacy and how data is being managed nowadays. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, a really important point here is, are we going to end up sacrificing our privacy in order to allow a surveillance system to make sure that we can track people with COVID-19? How do we manage all these citizens? Um, I think it's a huge question. But before we get into that, I, you know, since this podcast does focus on healthcare and blockchain. I just kind of want to get a sense of what you know or how much you know about blockchain and when you first heard about it. Uh, I'll, I'll start because I'm probably deeper into it. Uh, you know, I uh, took a, a very deep dive down the rabbit hole of blockchain starting in 2017. And you'd see uh, eight or 10 uh, major uh, books in my bookshelf around the, the whole blockchain topic, I've spoken at, at events, I've done some writing on it, uh, at one time have followed uh, the whole trend of ICOs uh, and, and wrote about that with a, with a colleague. We, we developed a uh, database around 138 different healthcare ICOs. I, I was amazed at the number that were there and, uh, and have some fairly... Uh, strong opinions. You know, I, I think that uh, there are still two potential uh, killer apps for blockchain in healthcare. Uh, we can go into them a little bit more deeply, Ray, uh, if you want later on. One of them is around privacy. And 
in, in that sense, I would put a blockchain into a broader family of evolving technologies around uh, distributed ledger technologies and uh, more generically privacy preserving technologies such as uh, federated learning. But mm -hmm. the uh, idea of uh, privacy being uh, protected by technology is something that I don't, I don't think the average person uh, really understands the potential of, but it's, it's truly there. And the second is really around, uh, it's, it's a huge area, but it's, I don't think, gotten huge traction yet. There's some still pro there are still some projects that are um, likely or, or I think potentially can blossom. But the second killer app that I see for blockchain and healthcare is around simply collaboration. And uh, I, I'm sure your guests and you are, are I've probably talked about this before. The the Synaptic Healthcare Alliance, I think, is a really good example of that. Where, you know, real simply, you got a number of players who, uh, in the marketplace, compete, but but they have a common need. In this case, uh, provider directories to be accurate, and uh, blockchain is a a great tool to uh, explore for uh, developing trust and bringing together a diverse constituency that uh, in, the mark in the broader marketplace will continue to collaborate but does have some significant common interests that, that can be enabled by technology. So that's, that's kind of a quick glance. I'm, I'm certainly uh, glad to go deeper into blockchain, but that's kind of an overview of my kind of view of the world in blockchain and healthcare right now. Sure, no, that's a, definitely a good start. Um, Devin, what are you, how are, how are you a position or what's your experience been like in blockchain? Yeah, I, I, I have not had any direct experience with blockchain um, in the way that Vince has, but, and I will tell you that when blockchain first sort of came on the scene and people were talking about it in healthcare, I think it got a little oversold by some folks. The, the marketing speak kind of got way out ahead of where the technology was, in, in part because it was being sold as blockchain is, is solving healthcare. All these issues around trust and exchanging data get solved by blockchain. Yeah. And the reality is, is that that's not true of, of, of blockchain as a technology any more than it's true of any other technology. It's a tool that can help you implement a sharing system that is built on a set of rules um, and when you think about it as a tool, it has a lot of potential in a lot of different use cases. Like if, you, if you're a company like ours, for example, that is um, basically not covered by HIPAA and needs to build its own sort of framework for how we're going to share data, and we've made a commitment to our users that we don't share their data, identifiable or de-identified, unless they say it's okay to do so. So on our end, we have to keep track of who's consented to which particular projects that involve data sharing. And that has to get executed against a database of data. Well, blockchain is a great solution to be able to execute those permissions and make sure that the data that's being shared is the data that, um, that for which we've received consent to be shared. And we're not sharing data that has not received that consent. Sort of a very simplistic 
um, response. But it does. But blockchain doesn't set those rules. We set those rules. We then ask blockchain to execute those rules. So that was my biggest problem with blockchain was that people were selling it as though on its own, it fixed a lot of the problems around data sharing, which frankly were less about the technology and more about people not really wanting to share data with each other. And if they don't actually agree on the, the rules or conditions under which they'll share data, then there's no piece of technology that's gonna make that happen. And so that, that was really my biggest issue with blockchain. Now that I sort of, uh, I now have a greater appreciation for where it fits in terms of assuring inter data interoperability, you know, supporting, I should say, assuring is really the wrong verb, supporting data interoperability in accordance with a set of conditions that are set, you know, by probably some combination of law and the comfort level of the actors that are involved in sharing the data. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're, you're right. Like back in 2017 and 18, like, you know, Vince had a list of 130 ICOs just in healthcare. And I was also following that list. And so I really appreciate you, you know, building that database and most of them are defunct now, right? Most of them have become nothing and there was a lot of hype. So totally appreciate that. And I think this is sort of like a very slow moving, uh, you know, revolutionary change in the way we think about data sharing and collaboration. So it's going to take time. Um, yeah, no, thanks for that. So Vince, I'm curious, during your work as a consultant, how are your clients viewing blockchain? Is it becoming more of a interesting topic? And also, especially with this COVID-19 pandemic, do you think more people are interested in what blockchain can offer? Or is it not really changed their minds it, with with people i've been working with uh blockchain is not even on the radar screen right now uh it's uh and i agree with everything that that uh devin has has said uh and i know one of your questions is, is going to be around uh interoperability of data so uh you know yogi berra uh is attributed this quote of in theory there's no difference between theory and reality in reality it there is and one of the early envisioned applications for blockchain was you could put uh, all electronic health records onto the blockchain so yes in theory that's possible but i think uh, to to echo devin's point and i think that's something that's become uh increasingly understood, I think, in healthcare is the economics don't really support that. You know, we're still getting to the point where uh, data sharing does begin to have uh, a much more appealing economic environment. The, the regulations around fire and uh, the, the uh, regs that were finally approved by ONC and CMS uh, earlier this spring, I think will be uh, dramatic in increasing interoperability, but uh, blockchain, I think, uh, doesn't ne isn't isn't necessary to support uh, any of that. So, uh, just to be blunt about <laughs> your question, uh, un unfortunately, because I frankly put a lot of time personally into this whole blockchain trend and trying to understand it, but you know, I I'm not seeing uh, I, I do see uh, a list of uh, consortia 
Uh, the ones that in particular are uh, listed in the Hash Health web website. And that's what I'm watching to see if black blockchain gets any uh, real traction in the marketplace. You know, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, it's definitely, um, you know, in my opinion, I think it's a long-term thing. It's going to take a lot of time for people to understand it. And it changes so much that it's not something we can kind of do in a few years. Um, but it's good to have you that like perspective. It's good to know that. And, you know, not everyone I have on the show is a hardcore Bitcoin blockchain enthusiast. So uh, <laughs> it's good to get different perspectives here. Um, so Devin, I have a question for you. And um, this is more about Citizen Health and Citizen, um, the company, and your role as Chief Regulatory Officer. You know, describe your role a little bit and what is the vision for the company? Sure. Um, so we'll start with the vision for the company. So our founder's little sister, who wasn't so little, but she was his baby sister, um, died of metastatic breast cancer in her late 40s. She did not have any um, family history of breast cancer. Her cancer was not diagnosed until she was in late stages and metastatic, and she passed away um, uh, maybe not quite within a year, maybe within a year after her diagnosis. Anyway, it was devastating for their family as it is for all families dealing with a cancer diagnosis of a loved one. And something that he noticed when he was trying to help her get the best possible care that she could get, trying to find a clinical trial for her, was that when he went and got all of her data and did the work to sort of pour manually through clinicalstrials.gov and he basically, based on the experience of trying to help his sister, Tanya, he sort of got the sense that there really needed to be a platform for patients that was not just focused on the data that comes out of portals, which is not a lot of data. It's perfectly fine for healthy people. It's not really a great amount of data if you're really, really sick. It doesn't expose enough data. You don't have access to images. You don't have access to genomic test reports, you don't have access to pathology reports, you don't have access to notes, although that is changing, but you still, you just don't get very much out of those, out of those, you know, through that pipeline. And, and what cancer patients need when they're seeking additional um, care, a second opinion, a third opinion, a fourth opinion, trying to find a clinical trial is, is the robust data set that they are allowed to get under HIPAA, and frankly, actually not just allowed, but it's their right, it's a patient's right. And this is something that I knew from my time working in the federal government in the HIPAA office at HHS, is that patients have this right to all of this data, all this data that maybe isn't exposed in portals or through APIs, but is still data that patients have a right to. And so when my founder, Anil Sethi, approached me about leaving government and coming to work in a place where we could help really sick people, people with cancer to start, get their data and really be empowered um, with that data to seek their own treatment options, to, again, to seek the best possible care for themselves, to be able to share information with a caregiver who would help them and to be able to donate their, re their data for research purposes so that, it, so that we're, we're fighting cancer, not just for ourselves when we're sick, but for other people too. Um, and so that was really the inspiration behind the company, and that's um, that's what we're doing. As the chief regulatory officer, my I have kind of a mix. I wear a mix of hats in the company. We're also a startup, so like like most startups, like everyone's doing multiple things, right? I 
I do, I am responsible for making sure that we meet regulatory requirements. And while we're not covered by HIPAA because we're consumer facing, we do have obligations under state medical privacy laws. And I have to, I wrote our privacy policy and we're accountable to that under federal law. And we're subject to federal breach notification requirements. And then we, you know, we have several projects that we're contemplating with some pharmaceutical companies where FDA rules may come into play. And so I've got to translate that, but it's also like, it's helpful that I was in government before. So when, you know, some of these new rules come down the pike and the, and we want to sort of understand what they mean for the company, that's, that's my job too, is to say, what is it about the information blocking rules that can facilitate greater patient access to their data? What is it about these fire APIs as, as Vince mentioned, um, that will be helpful um, in enabling patients to get, again, all of their data, not just um, some of their data. So that's what I do. So let me ask you a question about how the government is doing handling the, you know, COVID-19 uh, sure. pandemic that's going on now. What is your take <laughs> on how things are going coming from, uh, you know, government? Right. Coming from someone who's been in government, I, you know, I'm, Monday morning quarterbacking is always, you know, an it's easy to, to sort of criticize from the vantage point that we are all in, right? Mm -hmm. Looking at what's going on. I, I certainly think we would be greatly benefited from leadership that was, that believed the science, that took the mm -hmm. science seriously and was leading in a very science, in a very science forward way. Um, having said that, the one thing I do know from working in government is it, it is, it can be quite chaotic. Um, even when everybody is really on the same page and working towards the same set of goals, there are multiple agencies involved in this response and, and pulling all of that together, um, and figuring out where all your authorities are and what buttons you can press on and what, what, what you can do can be very, um, um, can be difficult to coordinate. Um, so, so, you know, while I, th I don't think that anybody would, would sit back and think, wow, we've got the best possible response coming out of our federal government. Um, I, I think, it, I think it's challenging. I think we're challenged by a number of issues. You know, we, it, it's the biggest public health challenge that we faced in this country since the early 1900s. And we're much more technologically advanced as a, as a, as a, as a society than we were then. And what sort of tools of technology can we leverage in order to take on what has traditionally been some very manual public health tools like contact tracing, like tools of quarantine and things of that nature. And it's, it's raising, I think, a lot of novel issues um, and it's raising them in, in the United States in particular, in particular, which places a high value on privacy and civil liberties as opposed to in other countries where culturally that's less of an emphasis for them. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit more about that contact yeah. tracing. I think it's really interesting, you know, countries like China and maybe like Singapore, maybe they have a much better way of surveilling their citizens and it's more, you know, they're used to it in a way. I think here in the United States, we value our privacy. People really value their privacy uh, and for a good reason too. Um, but there are still currently efforts, um, and I think Vince, you, you, uh, we talked about this before, but the Apple and Google exposure notification API that has recently been kind of announced. Would you want to talk about that and what kind of work is going on there and what you think about contact tracing? I, I would. Yeah. Thanks. And 
I think maybe uh, I would expect that there are going to be listeners uh, in the future. Uh, and so what I would like to do is set a little bit of context, uh, just exactly where we are today. Today is May 20th, 2020. And uh, nationally, that uh, in late April, May, the overall COVID deaths and cases began to plateau and, and now they're trending downward. The states have opened up and there is a lot of fear about uh, second waves occurring. And, you know, I, I personally think they're, they're, they're quite uh, legitimate. So uh, specifically talk about what Google and Apple are doing. Uh, they've come together, which is really unusual for these two large companies and essentially are developing, and I'm using my words uh, precisely here, an exposure notification uh, app platform. Uh, it is not literally contact tracing. It's only an app to support the broader contact tracing process. And as Devin pointed to, it's largely been a manual process and is largely grounded uh, in uh, work done by public health agencies. And uh, it is uh, not an app in and of itself, it's a platform. They're enabling others to build apps and there could be uh, a dozen or more different uh, apps. The, the essence of their model is, is highly privacy preserving. And uh, some have even criticized too privacy preserving. And uh, my personal view is that as it is currently configured, that uh, the large probability is that the uh, Google Apple app will be largely inconsequential. And uh, two primary reasons and then a third, uh, third kind of a catch-all list. The first is uh, understanding the network mathematics behind uh, successful contact tracing. The, the country in the world that's got the highest percentage of people who have actually downloaded one of these apps, and, and I should probably add in the U.S., we're in the very, very early stages of adoption, uh, the highest is 38% in Iceland. And the way that the math works, though, is it's not 38% adoption, literally. It means if you are going to catch a potential contact and then notify people, you've got to have both people uh, that have downloaded and are using the app. So the math works, it's 0.38, 38% times 0.38, which comes to roughly 14.4% of contacts will be registered throughout the system. And the feedback that we're getting from uh, the public health folks is, is pretty tepid in, in Iceland. Uh, in the U.S., uh, as of today, where these things are being tried in North Dakota, it's about 2% penetration, the same in Utah. And so uh, uh, the you, me you mentioned, I think, Devin, and, and you've alluded to it, Ray, the, uh, you know, the, the right to privacy. You know, there is a very strong um, individualism in the U.S., 
And so the surveys I've seen is many people are just not going to download this thing. Washington Post study says it's going to be 60% that won't, that won't download it. So the first, the first big challenge they've got is simply uh, lack of critical mass, and this thing never gets off the ground. Uh, the second I would label as they've, Apple and Google have really not embraced public health agencies and government as partners. And they've made some uh, decisions uh, in the interests of preserving privacy, which is understandable, uh, not to allow location-based data to be incorporated into the platform. Uh, that's getting into really being a governmental type of decision, but the criticism that's made is it's being made by corporations. And so uh, what I think you're going to see is that without this location-based data, uh, there's virtually no way that public health agencies can effectively integrate the app into their workflow. Uh, they really need this data to understand uh, who to trace and where to trace and, and to flag locations. And in turn, uh, many governments throughout the world are uh, pro probably uh, not even going to try it. We don't know what it's going to be like in the U.S. So th there's more, but le let me pause there and say I just think uh, it, I hope that they will address these issues. They would have to do some really drastic things to, to do that. Uh, but but um, I'm, I'm not real optimistic about how this Apple-Google uh, exposure notification platform is going to work out. Yeah, and, you know, there have been attempts from people in the blockchain space trying to build something like this where you can download an app and in a de-identified way um, share your, your status if you have, you know, antibodies or if you have the disease, etc. Um, you know, have you been looking into those startups and you know mo they're mostly coming out of like hackathons these days it's still really early but yeah so the comment i would make there is architecturally that the the google model is uh decentralized the data uh isn't going to exist on any kind of a central server and uh if you're a a uh, hardcore privacy advocate then uh they've been applauded for that and that's exactly the same place where the public health agencies say, well, this is pretty useless to us because we do need to have some centralization of data. Uh, and you know, I'm scratching my head because I'm going, this actually could be a place where privacy preserving technologies like blockchain could play a role. You could start with a fairly decentralized or rather a fairly centralized model uh, and some of them, uh, some of them are. Uh, the one in France is probably the one that's gotten the most uh, visibility as of as of lately. If you're looking for a good example of of one, and then uh, you 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 build in backend protections and you use blockchains to make sure that the data is not used for uh, purposes other than that is being um, gathered, and you have uh, strict. Uh, regulations that delete the data after a certain amount of time and the data is not to be used for anything other than public health purposes. But I'm not 
seeing, that's where I'm scratching my head, uh, blockchain or other privacy preserving technologies uh, being bantered about as a solution or as a compromise between these centralized and decentralized models. Hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the things is, relatively speaking, blockchain is still early. It's a small kind of idea compared to just the size of Google and Apple. Everyone is aware of Google and Apple. It's just they have that scale. Um, So that could be. Yeah, go ahead, Devin. Yeah, no, I I mean, I want want to pull in a couple of threads that um, that Vince tossed out there. I I think a lot of times with, with technology companies, they're looking to be disruptive. And to say, well, I've got this technology that actually can do better than what public health would do. Well, what, you know, I'll just, I've got a technology to replace all those people. And we'll, you know, we'll just figure out a way to uh, control the, contribute to the control of the pandemic and try to lessen the, um, uh, the degree to which we get a, a, a reef, you know, re-triggering of the, of the virus at the levels where it was uh, uh, several weeks ago. Um, just through the technology alone, right? And I think I think that's probably um, one of the major flaws, frankly, of some of the products that are being built out there is that it, without any knowledge of what public health has traditionally done in this space successfully for years and years and years around the epidemics and pandemics, like without, you know, maybe even, even bothering to sort of unpack what it is that they do, like, whoa, we don't need any of that. We're going to go down this track. But then there are some other apps that are being developed with public health in mind where they're like, what would it, what would be useful to you? What could multiply, what could be a multiplier to your efforts, which have largely been very manual and difficult to scale on a large, you know, to, to the degree that we need for a global pandemic? And how can we create tools that help that as opposed to replace that or attempt to replace that? And I suspect that the latter types of tools will be more successful, at least initially. And then it could be that some of these other tools, you know, this, this is what Apple and Google's um, tool looks like today. Will it continue to look like that, you know, several months from now? This is not, you know, something that we're just going to be dealing with for a couple of months. This is something that's going to be with us for quite some time. Um, you know, we'll have this sort of typical with viruses leveling off of cases in the summer. Viruses don't like heat. And then when flu season is, is coming back and the, and the temperatures start to cool off, this virus will be back um, along with whatever is the, the virus that's gonna come out for the traditional flu. And we'll be potentially right back where we are today um, if we're not a little farther ahead in a containment strategy. That is a mixture of humans and technology because there are parts to this also that are very human. You can't replace with technology. The idea that you're, 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 there's a human touch capa- um, capability to this, that there are humans that when they do contract tracing, they connect people to resources as opposed to just reporting on, whether, on, their, on their infectious status. So at any rate, that, that's my sense. Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful. I think also Apple, for example, they also teamed up with um, you know, government organizations to uh, build their own app, like a screening tool to see if people and they use like some sort of like you know decision tree system yeah, or some google ai did the same to kind thing. of verily did the same thing yep yeah exactly yeah um 
So I think those tools are helpful because at least it gives them some guidance, the patient guidance on what to do next or what they should be watching out for. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. In May, Hashcash Consultants announced a plan to streamline the medical supply chain by forming a consortium of medical equipment suppliers, pharmaceuticals and medical goods manufacturers, distributors, and other key players. Raj Shudri, CEO of Hashcash Consultants, said, The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed major flaws in the existing global supply chains especially with the critical medical goods, which has made us more vulnerable to the virus. The idea of forming a consortium with the major players within the medical supply chain initiated from the need for a transparent, fast-track, and organized system for the post-pandemic days, unquote. Based on the article, it sounds like they want to do everything from enhancing quality control to track and trace of drugs in transit. After reviewing the Yahoo Finance article and the company website, I have doubts about Hashcash Consultants actually achieving their goal. It is a 50-person global company that advertises an ICO white-label platform solution and offers a bunch of crypto-related products and attempts at blockchain services. I reached out to Raj on LinkedIn to learn more about the project. Maybe we'll get him on the show to hear how he thinks they can deliver in this chaotic environment. And now back to the show with Devin McGraw and Vince Caritas. So let's talk about what we can realistically expect um, from, you know, what, what are you afraid that the government is going to overreach during these times? Is there going to be like a serious overreach of government um, powers? Are we going to, yeah. You, you, I think let's, let's use South Korea as an example. You know, one of the things that we have learned, you look at, you know, the world landscape and there are, uh, you know, a dozen or more countries that have successfully uh, almost contained or have contained the virus, and, and we're not one of them, you know, that, that really doesn't fit our sense of American exceptionalism, but, uh, you know, we're, <laughs> we're not doing very well here, and there's some really good examples. Uh, you know, I think that uh, the legal structure in th really throughout the world is that uh, it's pretty well understood that uh, public health law uh, kicks into effect and essentially can override what in normal times would be more expected around uh, privacy. But I, I don't think that's the way that the world in the U.S. is really registering this. I think the, uh, the complaints that I'm seeing around preservation of privacy uh, aren't really acknowledging the fact that uh, public health law has been long established as having superior status. And in Korea, uh, when they had a uh, epidemic a couple of years ago, they passed legislation which allowed the government essentially to have access to all kinds of public information that is useful in the contact tracing process. And that's much of the reason why they've been able to uh, bat down the virus so quickly. The government has access to credit cards. Uh, it has access to your phone records. Uh, you will be quarantined. You will be checked on by the quarantine police. If you're not there, they will come out and knock on your door. 
you know, these are things that we don't tolerate. And we're looking for, I think, a uniquely American solution, but I don't think that we're close yet to having that. And the, one of the dominant voices, unfortunately, is, is around not recognizing that uh, privacy rights are, are not absolute, that they are uh, sometimes subject to um, limitations because of uh, crises in, in public health. So what do you tell people who, you know, you hear this often to say, well, if you have nothing to hide, why, why do you, why do you worry about it? I think that's a common thing people consider. Um, but what would be your response be? I mean, I think. You know, yeah. I, I don't, I don't have an answer and I'm frustrated because, you know, the, the message that we would want from our, the president of our United States is to be echoing what I'm saying about the need for, uh, you know, relaxing privacy in times of, of of pandemics. Instead, what you're seeing is uh, the President of the United States supporting protesters and uh, putting economic interests uh, entirely or almost entirely first and and really downplaying the uh, the dangers involved in the in the pandemic. So I, I don't have a, a good answer for you, Ray. It's a really good question, though. Well, it's one that comes up with um, in any time that there is a a battle between, you know, sort of needs for data versus privacy. This is also the same battle that happens around like when law enforcement has access to databases, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't have anything to hide, you know, then you really shouldn't be worried. And the, and the fact is, is that privacy is not just about protecting people doing things they want to hide. Privacy is about creating a sphere of life that is personal and private to you, which everyone wants, regardless of whether they have something to hide or not. I mean, you know, that is sort of core to, um, to humanity in many respects is this, uh, the ability to sort of have a private life. Now, having said that, I, I mean, I'm, I'm aligned with Vince on this and I'm going to have a public health degree. So this probably won't be surprising that you know, public health needs very often trump the needs of the individual. We have mostly, you know, requirements to be vaccinated before you can go in, you know, to, before you can start school. Information gets shared with public health out, out of your medical records without you knowing about it or having any say in that whatsoever. And this has been the case for decades. And it's true, you know, and, and here in the United States. So I, you know, some of this is about, oh, contact tracing. We can't allow the government to contact trace. The government's been doing contact tracing in response to, to infectious diseases for forever. So, right, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, some of it one. is also about like, you know, when you, when you introduce technology into the mix and technology companies, which, which people have a, have, have a low opinion of in terms of, of, of trust in protecting privacy these days. It's, it just ratchets up the conversation. Um, but I also agree with Vince that some of, whether this government, whether we have reason to fear that this government will trample privacy rights, frankly, um, you know, this is, this is a president who caters to the rugged individualists who don't wanna be told what to do under any set of circumstances, right? He's probably the least likely to do the things that frankly, we may very well need him to do in order to get this pandemic under control in terms of pulling on those public health authorities and levers to, to maybe make some of this stuff not voluntary, but in fact, mandatory so that we can, we can stop killing people, frankly. 
Right. And like time here is really an important thing too. Like this, it's really sensitive. We're, we can't really wait to make that decision in a few months or something. We need to really act as soon as possible. And you know, what's funny, I just thought of this, but you, you probably have the same people that want to protect their privacy with these contact tracing apps, but they probably share their geolocation all the time with food services like Uber Eats or whatever it is. So they're not really thinking about that, but you know, it's, it's interesting exactly. perspectives. Mm-hmm. Google and Apple's surveillance model. And I, 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 I do want to point out, I acknowledge, uh, I appreciate what Google and Apple are trying to do, and I would wish them all the success in the world, despite my, my cautions around them. But you're, you're absolutely right. These are people who uh, are sharing data with, uh, with, private, with private companies, uh, and the, the fear of, of government surveillance is uh, uh, overriding, but it really, it really shouldn't be. It's, it's, it's an irony. Yeah. Well, I don't, I mean, look, if you are, if you are someone who has been targeted by the government in the past, for some reason, you're somebody whose immigration status is, is in, um, uh, is uncertain or is subject to being revoked by the federal government, or you're someone who is in a racial minority group who has been unfairly targeted with law enforcement inquiry. Yeah, you worry about big government getting your data. You absolutely, and you have legitimate reasons for it. So, um, you know, it's not it's not like government is always the the great protector of data when we give it to them. I, you know, public health I think sits in this place where people still think of them as being you know, the do-gooders of the world that they, when they receive data, they act on it responsibly. And I think that's generally true, but it's not always. I mean, I have frankly seen instances where public health departments have um, played politics with people's data um, to, to, you know, with, with some consequences. To, to echo what you're saying uh, and to put a number to it recently, there was a Harris poll I saw, Devin, 82% of uh, people are still trusting either very or somewhat their their local public health agency and if we're going to have contact tracing that works uh 82 percent as the lead is pretty darn good it's better than uh corporate america which is around 50 percent trust you know give or take and and the government's even lower than that yep very interesting. It's such a fascinating conversation because we're becoming more and more technologically advanced. Everything we do is data and it's going to continue to grow. So obviously this data is valuable. Uh, we want to keep it private, but we also want to help the public, right? And we, we don't want to uh, cause more deaths if we can help it. What advice would you give to EMR companies now, like Epic and Cerner, the ones that have most of the patient's medical records. Devin, you want to go? Yeah, no, I, you know, I think they're actually um, really trying hard to figure out how they can be part of the solution um, in terms of being able to report data to public health officials, both at the national level and also at the local level, because they, you know, hold data from um, across multiple institutions. And so having them play an active role in reporting COVID-19 related data directly to public health versus each, in each one of their customers having to individually do that is, is potentially hugely beneficial. Similarly with 
you know, health information exchanges, which, you know, also connect multiple providers, you know, across multiple settings. And it, you know, they could play also a very important role in public health. And to the best of my knowledge, they, you know, those are ongoing conversations to try to be more helpful um, in making sure that health departments across the country have the data that they need in order to make decisions that we're keeping, trying to keep ahead of where the science is in terms of this virus, which has been very um, uh, challenging to sort of understand. And, you know, I think the government, this is one example of where the government actually did help. It's where OCR, my, my former colleagues, issuing guidance fairly quickly in fairly short order um, that made that clarified that EMR companies and health information exchanges and other HIPAA business associates contractors who who facilitate data exchange could do reporting directly to public health agencies and that they uh, that OCR would use enforcement discretion and not sort of um, uh, enforce HIPAA if the reporting of that data to public health was not for example permitted by the business associate agreement so it's going a little bit into the weeds of HIPAA but there's there's a role that they that they play and my understanding is that that all of them are trying to work very hard to be uh, to to help um, facilitate that kind of data reporting. My two cents would be, uh, you know, that that uh, the whole COVID crisis will only accelerate a trend that has been uh, coming slowly in the over the decade, one towards interoperability and data sharing. Uh, Epic and Cerner have uh, over 50% market share among the large hospitals. So they're, you know, they're the big players and Epic has had a long-standing reputation of not playing very nicely with the other kids in the sandbox. You know, there's reasonable interoperability amongst Epic users, but, but far less so with Epic and, and other EMRs. And I th I, the lesson I hope they learn is uh, that that time is that that's no longer going to be a defensible uh, business model and is only accelerated by the need for for data for public health. Uh, one thing to watch in particular for for everyone's radar screen, Epic recently announced that they're going to be building uh, telehealth capabilities into uh, into their EHR. And the question, and they're, they're working with a company called Twilio to do that. So uh, the, the question that will be on my mind to watch is, and uh, will, will we continue to see other telehealth apps in the App Store, or is uh, Epic now going to try and gain a monopoly around telehealth capabilities and exclude other telehealth vendors, I think, which I think would be a, a tragic mistake, but it's certainly something to be watching to see kind of what their mindset is and what they're taking away from uh, this whole COVID crisis. Well, Vince, there are these little things called information blocking rules that now do not allow um, the certified electronic medical record vendors to keep out competing apps. I mean, well, I think those yeah, are yeah, there's the le there's the letter of the, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, and it's never been easy to, to become and get your app certified on no, uh, but the, on the Epic App Orchard. No, and that that is absolutely true today. But much of the what's in those rules takes on 
those those sort of anti-competitive behaviors um, and basically outlaws them. Like yeah. so, in terms of so. prohibitive fee structures, um, discriminate, you know, uh, conditions for getting on the app store, for being listed as an app, for being et cetera. Like, I mean, the provisions are, are fairly strong. Now, of course, enforcement will be key to seeing how all this yeah. plays out. So. Well, I th I'm, I'm highlighting it as an area to watch and to yeah. see whether they truly adopt uh, an open platform mindset or whether there's continual uh, foot dragging and sort of not playing nicely with the other kids in the sandbox. <laughs> yeah. And I can yes. jump in and we just uh, kind of... Right. Go ahead, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, um, I could jump in because, you know, I work at Amwell. It's a telehealth vendor and you know, we've been doing this for about 15 years or so. So um, I think Epic's going to have to put in a lot of work to get to a level where, you know, it's consumer friendly and, and it really works well for all these workflows. They do have an advantage in that, you know, the patient records and those, that information is already stored there. So there's that connection, but Amwell is in the Epic Orchard store. So I'm happy to say that. I, I have definitely seen some early provisions of the conditions under which you could be listed in the app orchard for Epic. And I'm sure this is a, um, a document that's been superseded already by much more um, kind, kinder and gentler provisions from what I hear. Um, but I basically could take that document and, and highlight all the places where the information blocking rules directly addressed some of the conditions that they were that I'd love were to being I'd love to, I'd love to see your edits on that. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, that could be fun actually. We'll see if I can do that. <laughs> okay. Let's keep watching this issue. Yeah. All right. Um, changing gears a little bit here. Uh, Devin, while I was doing research on Citizen, I noticed that you have a there's a scorecard page and it oh, kind of yeah. rates all like the providers or many providers in the country. And I just want to kind of like share that with the audience so if you want to talk a bit about it i think it's really cool oh thank you ray yes um citizen has a scorecard um, where we rate healthcare providers on whether they are compliant with the hipaa right of access the right for patients to get all of their health information um, it is based on our experience of getting records for our citizen users um, it's not crowd. It's not a crowdsourced scorecard, um, but the reason why it, it 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 would be hard to crowdsource it is because I mean I know what the legal requirements are, and so I'm able to judge when a particular request has not been fulfilled in a way that is in a way that the law requires, which makes it a kind of unique, not not wholly unique to me perspective, but certainly one that you know most of the general public doesn't realize what they have a right to. Um, so we started doing the scorecard almost a year ago with just 51 providers on the first one. We found that about 51% of providers were out of compliance with the right of access. We did another scorecard version in November. So the first one was in August. November of 2019 was the second one with about 210 providers on it. The most recent version, which we just put up about a month ago, has 820 healthcare providers on it from across the country. Um, and we have seen dramatic improvements 
in how well entities comply with the HIPAA right of access, the rate of non-compliance is down to 27%. Bravo. And the, the percentage of providers who are doing really well, like scoring up at the top two, um, top two scores, which is a four and a five, meaning four means seamless access, all in compliance with HIPAA, and five is actually the little extra bump we give to providers who do even better than HIPAA like getting um, records to people within five days and for free, um, that went up to 67%. So more than two thirds of providers on the scorecard are right at the top um, in terms so of how putting, well they're doing. You're putting a bit of pressure on them, I guess, over, over those months. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to. We, we took a page out of the quality measurement playbook. You know, what gets measured and publicly reported can get improved. And whether it, you know, we're responsible for that improvement, I don't think I would, I would have, you know, the hubris to say that it was all us. The, the Office for Civil Rights is enforcing the law more than they were in the past. And we've got this, you know, we've got these other rules coming out that we've been talking about that are much more um, emphasizing patient access to their data. So it's, um, so I think there's a lot of factors involved here, but, um, but I'm just glad that this is a situation that's improving because, you know, for someone who is a patient or who is caring for a patient, the ability to get your health information is so critical. And now that we're doing so much in the telemedicine space, right, having those yeah. records is really key to facilitating televisits. You, you can't do a televisit, um, particularly if you've never seen this patient before, unless you have their data. Absolutely. And I think the idea of potentially in the future, having it crowdsourced would be really interesting to watch. Um, you know, you, you, you want to rate your providers, how they're doing on a five-star rating. Sure. That, that sounds good, but you can also rate them on different factors, like how compliant are they with HIPAA, et cetera. So I think yep. that's really interesting. And yeah, also I know that citizen also has investors like Andreessen Horowitz, Verily and Intermountain Healthcare. These are big names. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of interest in this company. So I wanted to see um, how your relationships are with those uh, investors. Yeah, no, we're grateful for their support. Um, they provide us with um, some good advice. They're, they're not just strong investors from a financial standpoint. They're seasoned and they know the healthcare space really well. And they're incredibly supportive, um, you know, from helping to facilitate, you know, potential partnerships to helping us grow our user base to, um, you know, just being out there and retweeting our stuff. Like it just, it, it really sure. runs the gamut. Um, they're, you know, we're grateful um, to have them, particularly during such a challenging um, economic climate. We, we're, we believe really strongly in what we're doing and it's nice to have such strong um, investors believing in us as well. Awesome. Um, so we don't have too much time, but I do have, you know, some questions left. So I had one question I was going to ask each of you what you believe in that most people would disagree with, but I'm going to flip it around a little bit and ask you, what do you guys disagree on? You guys know each other pretty well. You've worked together. So what do you guys disagree on in terms of, um, you know, privacy law or healthcare data yeah. rights? I, I, I'm going to hop in and, and uh, my mind has certainly changed. Um, as I, as I mentioned early, that uh, what brought us together most recently is this series that we've been writing about and, and uh, encouraging others to write about is the uh, Goldilocks series and the whole area of whether or I think where Devin and I agree is that we need comprehensive 
federal privacy legislation. And prior to uh, this COVID crisis, uh, I'd been working on a three-part series of blogs, essentially making the case, and I thought there was about an 85% probability that we would be seeing comprehensive federal private privacy legislation in the year 2020. And, and Devin had had hesitations about whether that was happening, even though I think we agreed we'd like to see it happen, you know, whether it could happen, especially in the, this age of uh, polarization. But uh, I think the chances of federal privacy legislation this year are, are pretty close to zero. Uh, maybe we'll see it specifically relating to COVID data, uh, but I think I'm still optimistic that, uh, and I would say where the, where the difference is, I think my view is there is still a tremendous bipartisan support for, uh, for privacy for, for various different reasons for the left and, and from the right. So I, I think it'll be back on the, uh, the docket in 2021. Uh, and I'm optimistic that we will see federal privacy legislation in 2021, but probably not in 2020. Uh, and Devin, maybe you want to offer your own point of view on that. Yeah, this is the one thing that we have not agreed on is the chances for this legislation and the notion that we have bipartisan agreement on something that's meaningful. I think I think where Congress is agreeing is at this such this high level and that there are several really um, hard issues that are that on which they disagree that are um, going to be essential to resolve if they get any legislation at all. So I, I, I think it's window dressing what they agree on. And there's a huge amount of turmoil underneath the surface of the ocean that I mean, you know, 2021, maybe. We'll see. Maybe. I mean, November, you ask me after November. Just ask a me flag after November. Bear, that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> after the election. Just yeah. Just to quickly flag those issues, the, the two big yeah. uh, roadblocks, one is around uh, preemption, federal preemption of whether federal law would pre preempt state laws, in, in particular, mm -hmm. I think California's come out with uh, probably the most uh, comprehensive privacy legislation in the U.S. And then it, the second big issue is uh, around the private right of action. Can uh, only the feds or the FTC or will there be opportunities for state attorneys general and or private citizens to be able to to take uh, actions to be able to enforce privacy laws. Those are generally the uh, the two areas that are the biggest stickers sticklers and uh, part of my optimism comes from the fact that uh, there's a lot of room for, uh, for compromise and negotiation in, in both of those areas. So what advice would you give these regulators? Like how can they come to some sort of agreement or what's like, you know, you mentioned these two specific um, points of disagreement, but what, what are they both missing? Why can't they find consensus? Yeah. Uh, so despite a few, few people would call me a supporter of the Trump administration generally, but in the healthcare area and particularly right in the regulatory realm, recently, I'm, I'm pretty much on board with about 80% of what I've seen. And in particular around the relaxations around uh, the use of telehealth and the reimbursement around telehealth. Uh, the distinction I would make is that uh, many of these uh, regulations should, uh, or deregulation 
for example, uh, licensing of providers across states should continue. And then there are areas where we've seen temporary relaxations that uh, are around, for example, uh, HIPAA uh, enforcement of non-certified uh, or, uh, I'm losing the right word here, but uh, the like technology like Facebook and being, Right. And in, in the interim, I think those are great that we need to use those and need to get them up in the long run. Uh, you know, I think we need to build in all the protections and, you know, I hope that we'll see uh, the rules come out such as, you know, we're going to go back to the old way and you've got three or six months to, to get on board, not, you know, not to do it overnight, but, uh, you know, making distinctions between the kinds of regs that can be that should be relaxed versus ones that should go back to the old way. Yeah. And I would say, you know, in terms of advice, um, you know, once you unwind something, it's very hard to put it back in the pen. Hmm. So are we going <laughs> to continue to see Facebook? And there. Are we going to, I don't know. I honestly don't think many, I don't honestly think that many um, um, providers rushed to use Facebook when they were told or like um, FaceTime, by HHS that they FaceTime is another yeah. is, you know, to use off the shelf products to be able to, to do certain tools of telemedicine, that one might be a little e easier to sort of rein in, you know, you, you've got another year to get a, a HIPAA compliant tool in place, as opposed to, you know, a lot, you know, that's, that makes a lot more sense. But some of this other stuff, I think will be harder to unwind. But but in terms of bigger picture, issues. I, you know, I, th I've been, I think you put your finger on, you know, one thing, which is don't be, um, the polarization is what is keeping um, compromise from happening on so many things in Washington, but certainly with respect to the privacy law. So if the issue of preemption is seen as a yes, no issue, the issue of private right of action seen as a yes, no issue, as opposed to, you know, gradations within those two areas and sort of where you can make compromise, um, you know, that, that we'll get progress when they stop fighting. And part of the reason why the fighting is so intense right now is because we are pre-election. Vince is right. Some of that may ease up, but that's why I'm holding off on making any predictions until November, because if, if, if we, you know, continue to have um, divided government to the degree that we have had, uh, it may not get any better. What do you think about the state licensing, uh, provider licensing? Do you think that'll come back in well, it didn't get resolved. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that I think is it, we have to be careful to understand. CMS, from a payment policy standpoint, relaxed their requirements. But that doesn't mean that each state relaxed their individualized licensure requirements. So from a payment policy perspective, that issue got helped. And I do think that that is something that people hope will remain in place even post pandemic, but that, but we still have the problem of state licensure laws being a potential obstacle to cross state um, telemedicine. Do you, you know, personally think that's a good legislation to have those? Yes. You do. Yes. Yes. It's, well, I think it's very we parochial. Well, yeah. we, but what about we found another issue? Another oh, issue. You disagree? Oh, there well, you go. I, I think they're just, they're there to protect, uh, you know, the monopoly status of, uh, mm -hmm. 
of the current providers that are, that are there. And uh, wait, and I agree with you. Here. They should go. Oh, away. We are agree. Oh, they should yeah. go. Away. Okay. I was so like, that's wait a I minute. I was like, Vince <laughs> thinks there should be state laws. That- so we all agreed that yeah. we all agree. Have okay. state restrictions on, <laughs> yeah. especially with telehealth, right? Because you can have a provider in California uh, seeing a patient in like Maine and you know, yeah. okay. the human, the human body does not change over state mm-hmm. boundaries, right? state law, you know, requiring lawyers like Vince and I to, to be barred or, or take some sort of exam that makes us able to practice law in a particular state, that matters because state laws are different. But I'm no different living in California than I was when I was living in DC. And there's no reason why I couldn't get a, tel- a med- medical service from a provider that I had been seeing most of my life who sees me online. I'm so glad yeah. we all agree on that one. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, I'm kind of wrapping up here. I just wanted to see if you guys have any recommended books or resources you'd like to share with uh, people on the, that are listening. I'll share a few uh, on the, you know, insightful perspectives on the whole uh, COVID-19 issue. Uh, Thomas Pueyo and team, P-U-E-Y-O, uh, has written a series of books or uh, articles on Medium. Uh, the Hammer and the Dance has become very well-known. I think you know, 40 million-plus people read that. It's just really wow. an insightful and continuing uh, insightful and up-to-the-minute analysis. Uh, and then I'm going to recommend some folks to follow on Twitter. Uh, and they're, they tend to be kind of clinical, epidemi- epidemiological type of folks. Uh, Farzad Mostashari, uh, Trevor Bedford, uh, Ashish Jha, Andy Slavitt, uh, and a couple who are non-clinicians, but I think are also very uh, insightful, uh, Balaji Srinivasan and uh, Ash, Ashkan Soltani, who used to work for the FDA. So those are, those are some of my FTC. quick recommendations. FTC. Ashkan worked sorry. for the FTC, yeah. Thanks for that catch. Yeah, Sounds like possible okay. future guests. <laughs> they would be Go ahead, Devin. Guests. They would be great guests. I'm not sure I have anything to add on that. I mean, I was going to grab my public health Bible written by Larry Gostin, Global Public Health Law. Like if you really want to deeply understand the role that um, public health has has played in this country and, and, and in the world and how critical the laws are that enable public health to do what they do, it's good to get a grounding in that. It's like public health is often happens in the background all, almost always under-resourced, and yet they, you know, they're really doing, um, you know, such important work to preserve the health and well-being of populations across the world. And they've, and they're, I'm hoping they're, they're having their moment in the sun. This is a hard time for them. It's a huge challenge, um, but, but the, their work is what's keeping us um, alive. You know, yes. Devin, that brings brings to mind. Um, what do you think about? our you know the president's request to stop funding the you know who world health organization the who <laughs> yeah i think it's so short how can you make sense it. of that I, I can't i literally cannot i got I, and, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm like i know i don't i don't even know what to say it makes absolutely no sense Vince, do you have any any possible it's, ways to make sense of that? It's political again, mm-hmm. you know, su- supporting uh, short-term priorities of uh, looking looking good in front of the electorate. 
Well, one day when we'll have a decentralized government way in the future out there, we <laughs> won't have to worry about so much politics. Our governance structure will be perfect and everyone's going to be happy <laughs> and fed well and healthy. And so all will be good. <laughs> um, so we're pretty much wrapping up here and I just want to, you know, make sure if you guys each want, have any takeaways you want to share with the audience, this is your time. Uh, I'll just say Great. thanks. I think it's been a really good yeah. session you've had. Well, thank you, Ray, for kind of weaving in. You gave us a list of questions, including some personal questions and uh, from having participated in a number of these uh, webinars or podcasts. Uh, I, I really appreciate your approach and thanks for the chance to join you. Likewise, I really enjoyed it. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.